promise. I wouldn't want to die here. I don't want to die in the desert. Promise me you'll come back for me. I promise I'll come back for you. There have been many great love stories down through the centuries, but it is curious that the most famous romances did not end well. History has given us Antony and Cleopatra, Pocahontas and John Smith, and Salim and Anarkali. As for literature, the greatest romances are actually tragic. Romeo and Juliet, Orpheus and Eurydice, Lancelot and Guinevere, Tristan and Isolde, and from Dante's divine comedy, Paolo and Francesca. Comedy my eye, they all end in tears. More recent classics such as Leonid Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, Boris Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago, and Annie Proulx's Brokeback Mountain end the same way. Look to the cinema and you get Casablanca, Brief Encounter, Roman Holiday, The Way We Were, Ghost, Titanic, and In the Mood for Love. Just what is it about sad endings that makes those stories not just so emotional, but profoundly memorable? The thing to note about those stories is not just the endings, but also the enormous distances that the characters travel to find true love. I don't mean physical distances, I mean social, cultural and racial. You see, in terms of storytelling, love is a metaphor used to signify the ability, if not the need, for us all to transcend our own circumstances. Transcendence is transformation, transformation is growth, and growth is life. The greater the transformation, the greater the life. The greater the life, the greater the love, and the greater the tragedy that the love does not last. But here is the trick. The love does last. In fact, it not only lasts, but it becomes eternal. It changes from the physical to the spiritual. See? Transcendence which means that the final moments of those great love stories are not really sad, but emotionally complex. We are upset because the lovers cannot be together, but we also learn the deeper lesson of their love. And what is the lesson? Life is for living, and to love is to be alive. The English Patient was adapted by Antti Mangella from Michael Andache's Booker Prize-winning novel of the same name. Set at the end of World War II, it concerns Count Almasi, a critically burned Hungarian desert explorer who is being cared for in an abandoned Italian monastery by Hannah, a Canadian nurse. Mangella had spent a lot of his early career writing for shows on British television, such as Inspector Morse, Boone and Grange Hill. The English Patient was only his third feature film, so how did he make the leap from school soaps to a World War II epic that was favourably compared to the magisterial sweep of David Lean? 
A lot of it came down to a remarkable coincidence. Even before Undachi's novel was published, the film rights were snapped up by an old independent producer. Now, even though this producer was 78, he had made just eight films. Yet he wasn't just any old producer. His name is Saul Zance, and of those eight films, he had won the Oscar for Best Picture twice. You're just a young kid. What are you doing here? You got to be out in a convertible while bird dog and chicks and banging beaver. What are you doing here, for Christ's sake? Sire, only opera can do this. In a play, if more than one person speaks at the same time, it's just noise. No one can understand a word, but with opera, with music. Mozart, music is not the issue here. Zance had seen Mingala's first film, Truly, Madly, Deeply, and was impressed by its emotional nuance. And so he contacted Mingala to ask if he had any projects in development. Mingala didn't, but he did say that he had just read a book called The English Patient. As an independent producer, Zance, who was now 92, has always financed his own pictures, and in so doing, has successfully protected the creative integrity of his productions, keeping them free from studio interference. But even with Zance's support, Mingela faced enormous challenges in adapting Andachi's novel. The chief problem was to eke out a strong plot from a book that relates its events in a lyrical and elliptical manner. The structure of the novel is non-linear, and in the novel, in the early stages especially, it feels as though Ndachi is backing into his story rather than taking its lead. In his adaptation, Mingela changed many things, restructured numerous plot lines and invented new ones. It is something he did again in his enjoyable adaptation of Patricia Highsmith's novel, The Talented Mr. Ripley. For instance, Highsmith's book does not have a character called Meredith Logue. The equivalent is a woman Tom Ripley knows in New York. She is called Cleo and is mentioned but a handful of times. Mingela took those references, changed her name and altered her character and thus facilitated an entirely fresh subplot that strengthened that film's ending. Such a willingness to depart from the source material allowed Mingela to open the English patient in a strong way. Name, rank, serial number. No, sorry. I think I was a pilot. I was found in the wreckage of a plane at the beginning of the war. Can you remember where you were born? Am I being interrogated? You should be trying to trick me, make me speak German, which I can, by the way. Why? Are you German? No. How do you know you're not German if you don't remember anything? Different as The English Patient is from the book, the finished film also differs radically from the shooting script. It was in the editing room that even more changes were made, with subplots being jettisoned and the ordering of several scenes changing utterly. What did remain intact, however, was the concurrent running of two main plots, one of them told in flashback. By juggling these two timelines, there are over 40 time shifts in the film, we can compare and contrast the two stories. For instance, there is a sequence in the desert where Count Almashi, 
played by Ray Fiennes, shows Catherine, played by Kristen Scott Thomas, the ancient paintings on the walls of a cave. That is later echoed by the scene where Kip, played by Navin Andrews, shows Hannah, played by Juliette Benoche, the frescoes on the wall of a basilica. Such instances help deepen the texture of the story, both in narrative terms and its themes. Let's consider those themes. One plotline takes place in Egypt, while the other is in Italy. The former unfolds in the past, while the latter takes place in the present. The colour codes are brown for Egypt, blue for Italy, sand for Egypt, water for Italy. The desert, dry and hostile, is associated with death, while the lush foliated mountains of Italy represent life, specifically rebirth, or to be more specific, resurrection, and let's be more specific still, spiritual resurrection. Don't believe me? Look at the scene that marks the entrance of Caravaggio, played by Willem Dafoe. Where is Hannah when this happens? She is in a garden, tending to a vegetable patch. Life. She is trying to chase off a murder of crows. Death. And what is the scarecrow made of? A crucifix. Still don't believe me? The entire sequence takes place in the grounds of an old monastery. Which in turn brings us back to the scene where Kip takes Hannah to visit the basilica. In the darkness, he hoists her up on a rope so she can see the frescoes. Holding a flare in her hand, she dangles about in wonder. It is a beautiful, dreamy image, not only because it looks pretty, but also because it holds a poetic meaning. Hannah has lost so many friends during the war that she is afraid to love anyone, lest they also die. I must be a curse. Anybody who loves me, Anybody who gets close to me, oh, I must be cursed. I'm in love with ghosts, she says. Which means that even though she is a nurse, her belief in life has all but died. And so it is Kip, the combat engineer who battles with bombs and defuses them on a daily basis, who brings her back to life. Through Kip, Hannah is figuratively reborn. Understanding that, we can see that the rope Kip has tied about Hannah's waist acts as a kind of umbilical cord, and suspended inside the basilica, Hannah is in a womb preparing for rebirth. Once you see that, everything else falls into place. The camera is often positioned inside an enclosed space, looking out from the darkness into a world of light. Through doors, windows, tents and caves, the film gradually moves from darkness to light, from death to life, rebirth and resurrection. That is not to say the film is without flaws. They come late and thick and fast in the third act, where the film relies less on character motivation and more on character as metaphor and destiny. Things happen because the director wants them to, and Minghella wants them to happen in order to preserve his themes. However, metaphor and destiny are essential ingredients in romanticism, and above all, The English Patient is a film for romantics. <laughs> <laughs>